Hi, this is uh, Dan Martin with the next episode of Next Gen Waterfronts. Uh, I have with me today Keith Winston. Uh, Keith is the executive director of the Brevard Zoo down in Brevard County, Florida, and uh, he is endeavoring to develop a new aquarium nearby in Port Canaveral. And so I have a lot of questions for him about what is an aquarium like in uh, in 2019 and uh, and what role does it play in helping people better understand the ocean and better understand uh, what it is um, what it is that's happening to the ocean too uh, but I'm gonna take a first crack uh, I've known Keith for a while so I wanted to ask him a few uh, semi-personal questions and the first one is Keith you've lived in a number of coastal communities over time and I know you've lived inland here in the Chicago area too is is there a difference to to where you live and whether it's on the coast or not? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because having grown up, um, having you know grown up on the East Coast in New York and lived on the Eastern Seaboard, I moved to Chicago, um, not really thinking of it as a water oriented town. But Dan, as you know, Chicago is the city where you drive downtown to go to the beach because it's so clean and you actually swim in the shadows of the skyscrapers. And then we often vacation in Lake Michigan, uh, in Michigan city with beautiful dunes. So it's Chicago, I think is unique in that sense that the beach and the waterfront is present, even though it, it's a great lakes product. And I don't know if that's true of other great lake cities, uh, you know, as much as Chicago, but reversing the river, cleaning up the waterfront, um, I don't think the fishing culture, I don't think the culture of Chicago is based so much on the shore like Florida is about the Jimmy Buffett palm tree beach. But you certainly use the beach and the shoreline there in a way that I really, really enjoyed. It is kind of like an inland sea in some ways. So so, so really what you do is you have to move to Omaha, Des Moines, to really feel what it's like yeah. uh, to, to, to be away and, uh, from the water because you were so close to a sort of a full coastal experience here it's really distinctive we really love those beaches and those dunes too so um i think the role of an aquarium is different because certainly the great shed aquarium although they have a focus on freshwater great lakes river systems that wasn't the, their primary exhibits were not on those systems so it's a little different from other coastal aquariums that can focus a lot on what's outside their door but so so coastal aquarium so an aquarium wherever you are um, does tend to have that dual personality of, of having whatever is there. And if, if what's there happens to be the coastline, you, you are about the coastal ocean and what's in the ocean. I, I, think, I, think a lot of the, I think a lot of aquariums, I mean, obviously you have examples of aquariums that you know, mostly are purely focused on that. Um, in Monterey Bay Aquarium is famous through Monterey Bay. Uh, South Carolina Aquarium, Charleston focuses heavily on sea turtles. Tennessee Aquarium focuses on their river system. So it's possible to focus and it's often preferable since aquariums are in fact tourism destinations. You don't want to just show what you see at every other aquarium. Um, but you also, you know, I think you also make choices about what's outside your door. And there are things that are probably not outside your door, like penguins that you might consider anyway. So, well, one one of the one of the things I remember in, in the lore of aquariums is that the uh, Camden Aquarium, and I'm not sure that's been its official name, but the aquarium in Camden across the Delaware from Philadelphia was 
couple of years, the New Jersey State Aquarium, and when it was, they were supposed to focus on um, on the fish of New Jersey, and and that wasn't terribly popular. So what they ended up doing was adding or changing management. And the new management did add much more uh, ocean and and uh, uh, you know the more exotic species. And their headline, they took out a full page ad, as I recall, in the Philadelphia Inquirer. The headline was something like the brown fisher gone, come back, try us again. Uh, so, so as kind of an entertainment vehicle, I suspect aquariums can talk about rivers and do rivers, but they, but when people go to an aquarium, they're expecting something exotic. Yeah, you know, what, one of the things we see in the field is, you know, I, I'm a curator and collector of experiences that connect you to nature. Um, I think when you think in things in terms of experiences versus, a, a, I don't even like the word, a collection of animals or a species, a list of species, um, you're starting off in a much more powerful place that's more relevant to people. I suspect we could design a great aquarium that's mostly brown fish from freshwater systems, but there are expectations people have, and we have it here at Brevard Zoo. People ask, you know, where are the lions and tigers and bears? And we're really happy to have bears now. It's made a difference, and we'll be adding lions. So certain things they want to see, they want to see colorful, what they anticipate as tropical fish. They, they want to see sharks. We know those things. And you're going to have to meet certain expectations or be really clear about why they're not there. But I don't think that stops you from still focusing on things that are unique in your ecosystem. Um, you know, some of my favorite exhibits in Monterey are these little uh, invertebrates, like the fat innkeeper, uh, really the, the a most sort of a wonderfully, horrifyingly grotesque-looking worm that's on exhibit there. Um, so, you know, I think, I think you can do both, but you can't not meet certain expectations. But that's about making sure those expectations are sort of experience-based. Well, I, I know what you mean about the, the, the star animals, too, because a few weeks ago, uh, my family and I visited the Edinburgh Zoo in Scotland and, uh, and were surprised to discover that that city had koalas and pandas. And uh, that was very cool and very different. And I would definitely say it, it, it made us think of that zoo as a, I don't know, as a bigger league zoo for having those or something like that. But it, but it, was, it, was, it was an impression. And, and I kind of wonder, you know, going back to aquariums, what, 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 what is the objective of an aquarium? What, what do you hope to convey when somebody visits you at an aquarium? Well, I think, I think, there's, I think that does vary in terms of location. I think if you're an inland aquarium, you, you might be simply trying to connect your folks to marine systems in a meaningful way, where I would argue here in Brevard County, we want to do two things um, because we are a long, thin county, 70 miles of coastline. We are really connected to bodies of water here. It's not to say everyone is, is but you know we have a, we have a St. John Rivers to our, to our west the Inver Lagoon down the middle and the Atlantic to the east and so many people fish and surf and use them. So it's not simply connecting them. Um, I think we want to do two things here. We want to show people what's happening below the surface. And that's language we hear people all the time. So give me a window into what's happening below the surface because I spent a lot of time looking over the surface. But it's, you know, impenetrable below. And then in our case, because we are on the Inver Lagoon, because the zoo is so engaged in marine restoration, um, and because our geography tends to separate us 70 miles long, 15, 20 miles wide, um, I want our aquarium to actually be that front porch 
or that village square on the lagoon, our front porch where we can look out and contemplate its meaning, um, and that village square where we get together to really figure out solutions. Um, it's the commons where we can get together and figure out solutions together to take care of this unique resource. Um, that is, I think, more specific to us um, than other places because of our engagement and because of our community's engagement with protecting these systems. But um, I think as a coastal aquarium, we have a real role there to do that. So in, in these times of rising waters, are aquariums uh, a kind of a place to go and demystify oceans or to develop a connection or just an understanding? Well, I mean, I think, I, I think well, there's a couple things. Um, we know from some pretty good research that, you know, we have to have experiences and things to care about them and love them, right? We don't have to have knowledge about them. That's a misnomer, but experiences. So hopefully we give you experiences with marine systems that really make a difference and make you feel connected. Um, in our case, we want to actually offer some opportunities for tourists while you're visiting, here's how to treat our lagoon, and for locals and direct opportunities for engagement that goes beyond that. Um, and then a third piece, of course, is what are we contributing to the economy and the community in terms of recreation? So, you know, jobs, tourism, um, great place to bring your family. But I also say, you know, we, we, we often talk about it's got educational overtones. You feel good about it. You've had a, you've learned some things, but more importantly, have you experienced some things that will make you more actively participate in helping this lagoon? How do you build a, how do you build that connection between people? and creatures that live in a completely different environment? I think a, a myriad of ways that let you sort of author your experience with them. So obviously the most passive is simply seeing them in that environment. And for many people, it's just wondrous and beautiful. Um, uh, beyond that, I think you're looking at, is there some interaction that your staff is having with them? When you see a diver in a tank feeding a nurse shark, suddenly that shark seems a lot less aggressive. Um, and, and then are there experiences you can have with them? You know, there's a big difference between a touch tank experience where the animals are really trying to avoid you at all costs. Um, and, uh, and our touch tank, last time I did it with, a, with, a, with our ray feeding, the rays mob you. We don't charge for it. It's aluminum people. They are mobbing for you. You're physically connected with those animals. So I think it's when something unique happens and it's not simply... Um, a passive experience. What 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 can what have you learned from running zoos that help you when you're trying to devise an aquarium? I think those same lessons. Our our zoo, our sort of brand statement, our experience statement here is we provide personal nature experiences in an authentic Florida setting. So we're trying to provide personal experiences in our aquarium in truly on authentic Brevard setting. So. The types of experiences we're seeing, the scenes, are unique to us. What's it like to experience the ocean through a, a conveyor of space? What's it like to have a commercial shrimping business here and an industry here? And Why is it good to buy U.S. shrimp because they're sustainable? And why is it good to spend a little extra money to try those fresh shrimp coming in as opposed to buying frozen ones shipped from overseas? Um, what about the sports fishing industry here? Um, and so we have experiences with tarpon that you would see down in the Keys or you might see off our beach where you can train tarpon to come take food from your hand. So, again, those are local stories. That story does not apply in other parts on the eastern seaboard. 
um, it applies here. And we want to tell that. So when you came from another place, you go, man, that's really cool. Different than my aquarium back home. Half of our aquarium is going to be outside because you don't come to Florida um, essentially to be inside. That's real interesting. And, and you're actually making, a, I think, a distinction there that I that I hadn't asked about. And that was, you know, all coastal aquariums are not are not the same because all coasts are not the same. I, I grew up in, in Boston and, you know, periodically in the news, there would be talk about uh, George's Bank and the, how the fishing was up there and such. And uh, and that's something you would never talk about in Florida. So your coast and your aquaculture is way different than than um, up north or even, I would guess, the Gulf Coast. The Atlantic and the Gulf are different. Yeah, so, some similar stories, but some we're not going to have a... Um... We're not going to have an exhibit here of oil platforms, but if I was on the Gulf, I certainly would, you know, because oil platforms have, um, you know, some negative connotations, but some positive. They're great fish reefs. Um, so, um, so again, those local stories and then some universals. I mean, people do want to see sharks. They want to see bright, colorful reef fish. And, and we certainly would be perfectly proud to show them the kind of reefs they find off our coast or south if you're through the Keys. But I'd love to show them the Aquarina Reef, which is unique. It's a deep water reef off our coast where there's rock shrimp. That to me is something I haven't seen otherwhere. So I'd like to get that story too. So that's actually a real interesting distinction between, you know, at least coastal aquariums and zoos in that zoos have a kind of a checklist of animals you expect they'll have. Uh, and of course, all terrestrial, but there you have a checklist that you have, and then you hope for some of the, you know, really stars of the show, the lions, tigers, and bears, and oh my. Um, but but with an aquarium, because you know we don't think of we think of animals as African animals, Asian, you know, whatever part of Asia we're talking about, um, you know, Eurasian animals and North American animals, and you you have that same distinction with aquariums where where bodies of water are different depending on depth and their location uh, on the planet uh, as to what, what what aquaculture you have there. So you can try to do a greatest hits in an aquarium or you can do the greatest hits and what is locally there. Right. I think, I think for example, that's a perfect example. The Georgia Aquarium, which is inland, um, doesn't have a connection with any particular body of, of water was designed to be like the greatest hits of aquariums all over the world and brought in whale sharks and, um, you know, and uh, um, a whole bunch of animals that um, that were specific to, you know, um, beluga and things like that, um, specifically because they wanted to have those greatest hits. It doesn't have a sense of place in the terms of you connected specifically with one habitat, but it says a bunch of amazing experiences. Very different approach. We don't have the dollars or the location in terms of, you know, we're not downtown Atlanta, so we've got to give you something distinctive to our community. And quite frankly, that's who we are anyway. We're about that authenticity. Well, that, that's that's really interesting, too, in, in, in just the distinction between aquariums, because I've been to uh, Merlin, a commercial uh, organization owns, I'm going to say, about 60 or 80 sea life aquariums around the planet. And uh, frankly, they're not that different from one another. Nor do I think they need to be. I don't know. If, I have no idea if you visit one, then you visit another. I just don't know what their whether they uh, what their expectations are. Um, you know, when I was at the ones I visit, they do wonderful thing with it. The, their variation that I saw is with acrylic. 
So they you do all sorts of interesting viewing windows that lend themselves to different photos that allow you in small spaces to feel in different ways with the fish. I thought they were sort of masters of acrylic windows. Um, that's a different approach. Yeah, and, and, and that makes sense, though, because you are creating an artificial environment for your creatures to live in in an aquarium. You, you, you do want to provide some sort of native feeling or at least looking environment for animals in a zoo, but it's way different. Uh, with with uh, with an aquarium because it's genuine life support for those yeah. animals. You're, you're creating something totally um, totally unnative to that spot. I think the other thing now, I, where I think there is uh, the new frontier is, um, you know, we think of people as um, as having connection with zoo animals, but not actually having connection with aquarium animals. And I I think that's changing. Fish are smart. Uh, Invertebrates are smart. Everything's smart, essentially. You can train them to do amazing things. And I think that changes the way you perceive the world. If you see a, a, a grouper that's trained to do certain behaviors or enjoys having sand thrown on its back, as many of them do, then you think about that animal in a much more personal way. So I think you'll see the aquariums of the future will focus less on collection, certainly more in experience, but also in showcasing uh, the idiosyncrasies and personalities of individual animals, um, which is what we as people really relate to. Yeah, and, and, and I think you're, you're, uh, you're onto something there too with, you know, the, uh, just the way that uh, people, um, you know, we've begun to, to have higher levels of interaction at some zoos with animals too. And, and if your ultimate objective is to create that connection between people and animals, that will result in a caring connection um, and therefore presumably in different behaviors downstream um, than, uh, than, than pushing that limit that way. And, and, you know, certainly we'll understand it as a species when we start uh, shooting people off to Mars, because that will be sending people to basically a human aquarium on another planet and a flying aquarium to get there. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, that notion of, of, of life and other, and other environments, but that trainability is really interesting. I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't think I, I had heard anything about the, you know, throwing sand on the backs of groupers or, or things like that. I think that's really, you know, we're beginning to understand as we focus on animal wellness in zoos, we realize we owe that to everything under our care. Um, and certainly to, animals in aquariums. And we know that if you keep fish, you learn your fish's personalities very quickly. Um, so I think that's, that's the next realm. And I think, so you have many aquariums, for example, that have a big tank that you get to see from different viewpoints at different times with different windows, saves you a lot of money. Um, you know, I'm also intrigued by the idea of having fish that end up moving through tubes and tanks in your aquarium. And, you don't know where you're going to see the big-headed rash today, but you know every time you come, you see that fish and you recognize it. It's got some personality. You look forward to seeing it. Also adds adventure to your experience. It's good for the fish too, because in, in real life, in an ocean, it would move around presumably, and you know, certain by time of day or by feeding cycle or whatever, it would hang out in different places. Right. We have so many species that. Well, hang low during the day, come up to the surface at night. I mean, that's the other thing we, we forget. They're more like birds in the sense that they're moving up and down as well as laterally. Uh, it's an X, Y, Z world for them. Um, and, uh, and so giving animals those options to show those behaviors and, and live, quote unquote, naturally is also in everybody's interest. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about the X, Y, Z world, that they move through space differently than we do and differently than animals in a zoo would. Mm -hmm. 
So, so you does and your point about the movie. I thought you were, you know, drawing a comparison with nowadays how we have a lot of exhibits where monkeys, for example, or lemurs can move from one cage to another through uh, through mesh bridges overhead. Um, and and that's kind of what you're talking about. That's sort of the the germ of the idea. But the idea with the fish being able to move around an aquarium between tanks is 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 really very different because. Uh, because it is in that X Y Z continuum. It's no longer, you know, just where which of the case cages are they going to settle in, and the and the tubes are just transit. Yeah, and, you know, we're, we'll see how far we can push this envelope. I'm the first to admit, I feel I have some real expertise in zoo exhibits. I feel we're we're certainly not tried and true experts on aquariums. We have a lot of familiarity. We've been around it, but and we have aquariums here at the zoo, but we'll find out just how much we can push the limit by working with real experts on life support systems and fish behavior who will, you know, tell us where where we're pushing too far. But I'd love to give fish some of those chances to migrate through our institutions. I'd love to surprise guests never knowing where that grouper shows up. Um, and then it'll be out for a lot of group where they're going to stay in their big hole the whole time because that's home. They don't really want to go anywhere. Uh, that's all. People always think that animals want to move. Most animals spend their lives trying to conserve calories. Like a happy snake never moves. The food comes to it. The shelter's there. The water's there. A mate shows up. If it doesn't have to move, for most snakes, there are some, there are some active hunters who want to. Uh, a snake that's not moving is happy, and a snake that is moving around all the time is very uncomfortable. It hasn't found its happy place. Now, now for some reason, about 40% of American households have dogs, and a lower percentage have cats. And people have always you know, observed that cats seem less emotional than dogs, and part of that is their face. Um, how, how do we know when aquatic life likes something or when they're responding to something in any way? Um, is, is, are we looking at their face again or, 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 um, how, I mean, aquatic animals have behaviors that I have no idea. About. Well, the nature of, of all, of almost all training in zoos and aquariums is positive reinforcement, right? Uh, do something we'd like you to do. We give you a treat, um, or we give you some reward in the case of a rhinoceros, it might be a belly rub. So I think that's it. If, if we see the animal repeating the behavior because we give it fish, um, uh, we, we know, you know the fish is a positive thing for it. If they keep going, so they're coming for the fish. If we keep offering a shower of sand and they keep coming over to it without the fish, then we know that's the belly rub like we have with a rhino, even if we're not reading their faces. That's interesting. So, so, so it, it, that's a way that people can connect with with uh, with aquatic life, watching their behaviors and being told, you know, what they seem to enjoy and stuff. What What are some of the the aquariums that you've been to, or some of the exhibits you've been to that have impressed you, as far as uh, being able to, you know, say these are clearly building connections between people and and the animals they're watching. You mentioned tar- text, uh, touch tanks, for example, I know has been around for a while. And, you know, feeding the uh, uh, the rays has been around for a while. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of things that have stuck out in my in my mind. Um, obviously, I talked about Monterey in the setting, the ability to see tanks inside and look out over rocky coves and seeing those same things. Um, I. I, I guess over time, I've seen South American river exhibits where you're simply struck by the size of these freshwater river monsters. Um, that's impressed me. And, you know, I remember actually being at a zoo 
where they had a big um, arapaima, big fish that goes like eight feet long. And I was looking down in a pool and just seeing it come up and surface and then disappear is one of those holy cow uh, moments. Um, I try to think about cases where I really feel, I mean, most of the cases where I feel connected to fish in amazing ways are happening in the wild and we're going to try to recreate them. So if you go to Robbie's Marina on Isle Mirada, uh, and they now charge you uh, like to go out onto the dock, but it used to be you would simply buy a bucket of fish, walk out on the dock, hold out a, I don't know, whatever they gave you to feed. And, you know, up to a 300-pound tarpon would jump out of the water and grab the fish from you. That's an amazing experience. The fish is there by choice. Uh, sometimes you got your hands scraped up, which added a little bit of the danger. And that is so memorable to me. Um, or snorkeling and seeing sea turtles or sharks or moray eels or those things. So that's what we're trying to recreate. Um, I do remember a, a SeaWorld exhibit years ago, which had tubes and tubes of tubes filled with moray eels. And I was looking at a sea of moray eels. So um, those sort of things have left an impression. We're trying to do not a greatest hits, but an aquarium experience that every one of our tanks is there for a real specific reason um, that you're going to have some experience or sense with it. And uh, are you actually, are humans actually going to be able to go to underwater or into the aquatic environment at, at your aquarium? Or have you seen aquariums where that's done well? Sure. A lot of up, there's a lot of premium experiences that you do in an aquarium where you get to go dive in a tank or, or, um, touch, you know, touch rays. We'll probably have, we, we are going to have a large outdoor water play area that's themed around the St. John's River. Uh, you'll be in a chlorinated system versus the animals, which will be in a life support sort of base system. But we absolutely want you to get wet and touch tanks and things like that. So our whole outdoor water play is going to be a pretty wet experience, but it's Florida and it's summer here almost all year long. So it makes sense. Yeah. It's either hot or too hot. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The variation isn't that significant. You, you, you know, one, one thing I do wonder about, and, and that is, um, uh, is you're going to have a lot of, uh, presumably a lot of tourists who are just going to come through once, or maybe they'll come through if they come a second time, um, at your location, because you're literally, you know, right next to one of the largest cruise ports where your aquarium is going to go, uh, right next to Port Canaveral, um, and all the people that, you know, come over from uh, Orlando or come from wherever and get on a cruise ship and go out on the ocean. Um, is is is, uh, is there something different about serving uh, a cruise market, or um, is, is it just more of the same of showing uh, – of, of, of showing tourists, you know, the aquatic world. And I guess the other dimension to that too is, is, um, is, you know, cruise people going out on cruises are getting as close as you can to the ocean, but they're actually not going on it. Do you think they're developing a connection with the ocean? I'm not, I'm not, if you look at our attendance projections, it does not show a huge capture of the cruise market. No, it's a huge market, two and a half, three million independent people if it continues to grow. And just capturing a small percentage of that would be great. We think we will capture a, a larger percentage of port of calls, ships that pull in, people get off and get back up. But the embark, debark market, we don't expect to capture a huge amount. We'll have to see. We think there's a convenience. People often come in the night before. Um, so if we're open potentially in the evenings, that might capture the market. The, you know, the parents, the family, you know, flew into Orlando, got to their hotel at six. What are they going to do that night? Maybe that's a niche that we can capture. Yeah, you always go to the aquarium. Or 
for those cruisers who don't want to be the first on the ship, and many do, it's right there. You could come to the aquarium if we can find a way to, hey, you can store your luggage here, whatever. We can get you over to the ship. I think it's going to be more about convenience items, serving those audience times, than it is going to be um, about different experiences. I don't think they'll see any aquarium like ours because I think it's going to be unique, period. Uh, but we certainly don't want someone to get off a boat from Baltimore and go, oh, this is a smaller version of the National Aquarium. Yeah. is 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 uh, you, you know, one thing you alluded to there is, uh, is, is the age groups, too. And I, I wonder, too, you know, zoos have often been targeted toward, you know, young families. But uh, as as we previously discussed, something like only 20 percent of all American households have kids 12 and under. Um, I think it might be 21 percent. But that means the majority of all households don't really have young children in them. Is is it going to be different doing an aquarium in, in the age of adult households, say, than it was, you know, 25 years ago when there were many more family households? Well, you know, I was thinking about that. We certainly have elements in the aquarium aimed at children. Um, in Florida, you're also looking at a significant grandparent market. But I can tell you that the great majority of visitors to the zoo are adults. Um, I'm sort of looking up that as, as we speak so I can give you those numbers. Um, so it's already happening at the zoo. Yeah. If you were to take a look right now for our year to date, um, um, the percentages um uh, the largest group of uh, members we don't distinguish, but you're really seeing, you know, four times as many pain. Let's see, I'm doing the numbers in my head as we speak here. Uh, at least twice as many adults as kids, if not more. That's for the paid people, not for the members. So for people coming in and paying full price, um, yeah, you're seeing, um, you're seeing somewhere between uh, twice and three times as many adults. So we're used to that. But, you know, a group of adults will happily, if they have a, if they have a grandchild with them who will be entertained as well, that's a huge benefit. But our experience at the zoo is very, very adult-friendly um, without children, and we need to make it that way too. And who knows, the child in us, if you make the great, world's greatest water table, uh, you know, I love to play in that stuff too. Yeah, well, that, that's actually an interesting thing because with adults you have to sort of break them down. Uh, in some cases, kids seem much more willing to dive into a situation, literally, than adults. Um, and uh, so it, it'll be a, a bit more of a challenge. I, I actually think that the distinction that we have to work on is technology. Ah. I think there's a teen tween group that really wants some technology play in areas that a lot of adults and that young kids, young kids don't need. Um, and adults don't understand or have patience with. But I think it's actually not, I'm not worried about how we serve young children versus adults. I'm worried about how we, we serve teens and tweens in a tech way that's meaningful and not just a throwaway to sort of say, oh, you want technology, here's some. Yeah, Florida is a really, where you are, is, is a really complicated place to talk about, you know, the rise of oceans because, you know, it potentially is quite real in that a lot of places and you know, homes and such um, may uh, maybe uh, maybe threatened over time. Um, it, 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 do you think there? Do you think that do you think that challenges people's desire to to learn about the ocean, or do you think they're as willing as ever? You mean climate change and sea level rise? So, like everything else, I mean, one of the things we know is if you bombard people with bad news, they just shut down. 
That's what I was expecting there, yeah. So, you know, I don't think we have to tell people sea levels are rising. Uh, I don't think we have to tell people climate change is happening. The evidence is there. It's pretty clear. Uh, the famous quote is, what's beautiful about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. We're not going to convince anyone who's <laughs> an anti-climate change person to suddenly believe it. But what we can do um, is suggest ways to get involved and engage them because behavior leads to behavior. So a lot of what we'll talk about is how can you help the lagoon? How can you do these things? Climate change probably won't be one of the core conservation messages at the aquarium. Um, it's a little hard for individuals to get done, but we are looking at alternative energy. Then we'll have a conversation about at least a little conversation about what you can do. Um, but plastics are much low hanging fruit, sustainable seafood. Um, and again, living around the lagoon, that's probably where we're going to have our focus. Now, if I was in Miami and we were flooding every king tide, then it would be really irresponsible not to talk about that. We're going to see sea level rise impacts here very significantly, but they're not as obvious as they are in South Florida right now. Right. And you and, and you, you, you do bring it home to what is, uh, um, you know, one of your critical habitats, the, the Indian River Lagoon. Yeah, I'm such a focus. But we also are going to do beaches in the in the St. John's River are also defining us. So any any uh, now now this podcast is often about uh, development on coastal areas. Um, have there been any coastal developments or structures that you've come across in your travels that have impressed you? Any anything and 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 why? Wow, that's a great question. It's kind of a. It, yeah, I'm sort of I'm I'm sort of asking a painter to draw uh, to uh, to to write. Right. I mean, obviously, the first time I saw the Inner Harbor development in Baltimore years ago, um, that was really impressive. Um, uh, likewise, I've seen some of these sort of Victorian villages that are sort of amazing. I, I have to tell you, I'm going to tell you just the opposite. Uh, when we visited, my wife and I visited Cedar Key on the west coast of Florida. As you drive into town, there's a Dollar General or one of the dollar chains on the right-hand side. And that's the last chain institution you see. They have banned them. There's no chain stores, no chain restaurant. Everything is mom and pop. At the time, they called, they said, that's our Cedar Key Walmart, a Dollar General. Um, so what made me distinctively feel was this little unique enclave, which depends on uh, commercial, you know, uh, commercial uh, a bivalve farming, they farm clams and, and um, oysters, had kept their distinctive uh, mom and pop feel. Um, and it was just wonderful. Um, so it's almost a lack of development because everything else with chains just starts to look the same. Um, I, again, up in Chicago and Michigan City area, there's a one, we, we used to go to a place that all the houses looked like Victorian houses. I love that look. But waterfronts are so common and developed now you know, uh, the river walk in San Antonio sort of defined it. Um, I think it can become cliched if it looks like everything else. Yeah, it can look, it, there is a certain sameness to uh, to a lot of these places. Um, and, and, you know, we even have a term for it, RDE, retail dining and entertainment. That's the package. And uh, yeah, show me something that's unique. Well, Keith, thanks very much. Anything you want to add in closing as far as, and maybe you can tell us what your you know, current timeline is for development or? Well, we're really excited about this project. We know the kind of impact it would have in our community um, and, um, and the community wants it. 
Uh, we just have to figure out how to raise, I don't know, another 30, 40 million dollars. So if anyone out there has had a dream to really be associated with an innovative aquarium that can help change the world, uh, please come find us. That sounds great. Um, well, thanks. Thanks again. And, and once again, I've been talking with uh, Keith Winston. Keith is the executive director of uh, the Brevard uh, the Brevard Zoo. And um, now you're actually you're in Melbourne, aren't you? Or Melbourne, Florida. We're unincorporated, but officially our, our, it's Melbourne. Essentially Melbourne. And uh, and you're in the midst of planning the development of a, uh, of, a of an aquarium down at Port Canaveral, which is at the other end of Brevard County uh, from the zoo. And, uh, and I appreciate your coming on and, uh, and sharing with us uh, your thoughts on aquariums because I, I do think we need to figure out more ways for us to, uh, to, uh, to understand the ocean because too much of uh, the discussion about the ocean rise seems to be about what it's going to do to us and not, wow. not enough is, is about, hey, what's it going to do to them? Well, and that's the sad thing. We already have such great documentation of what climate change is doing to species around the world. Uh, we tend to ignore the individual impacts on people. That's pretty damn clear as well. But we can see what's going on in species everywhere, in ocean species, ocean acidification, changing migration patterns. It's, it's, it's there. All the evidence is there. So, um, and sometimes the best way to people's heart is through a, is through a scaly or, a, or hairy <laughs> animal, either one. So yes. thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. And this has been Dan Martin for the uh, American Shoreline Podcast Network, uh, Next Gen Waterfronts. Thanks very much.